Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Welcome to Once for All Delivered, a podcast that exists. I am Andrew Smith, and I am joined here by my co-host, Caleb Castro. Say hi, Caleb. You're muted, Caleb. (laughs) And I am Caleb Castro, and I am present. Yeah. Uh, Caleb's got this thing going where he forgets to bring his headphones to the office where he records, and so he has to manually mute and unmute himself every time he wants to speak. So that's pretty fantastic. Uh, so today we are picking up and continuing an occasional series that we started. I have no idea when this is going to actually air. So I'm not going to pretend that there's any kind of time referent to it. But we are talking through Reformed Catechism. Specifically, we're doing a bit of a comparison exercise between the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism there presented in order of importance. Just kidding. Apologies to all my continental Reformed friends. Caleb, you're muted. (laughs) I can't hear. I'm getting false results here. (laughs) Anyways, yeah. Uh, apology not accepted uh we're also going to begin uh comparing with the roman catholic cate- uh, catechism the lutheran catechism which has been the subject of quite a bit of some controversy again i mean we could be months removed from that by the time we air this but at the time of recording there's just been a very interesting online controversy around the missouri synod lutherans and a new edition of their catechism with some commentary and annotations But that would be pretty far afield for us to get into that, though it's interesting if you're interested in uh, what our Lutheran... I wouldn't call them friends, because I don't think they really think they're our friends, but what our Lutheran people are up to these days. Um, A a version of the Luther's Catechism was basically published, or about to be published, and it had some articles that... uh, seemed to be pushing some questionable positions, but then the president of the denomination, whatever that means, or the synod, uh, basically stepped in and stopped it. So kind of an interesting development. Not our problem. Yeah. We're going to talk about catechisms that matter. Lutheran burn. Um, so actually, I, I uh, made the joke that we... The Westminster is more important, but we're actually going to be continuing forward following the order of the Heidelberg Catechism. Part of that is the Heidelberg Catechism is conveniently structured into 52 Lord's Day, so we can kind of look at it in smaller pieces. Yeah, and that's kind of really what that's all about. Yeah, it's just pedagogical purposes. Like We, we, we spoke just a little bit on the instruction approaches uh the differences between the cat uh, heidelberg and the uh westminster shorter uh in the previous episode on the catechisms uh so you'll want to check that out um but here uh this we'll be looking at today is in lord's day two uh which begins the first part of 
the Heidelberg Catechism, which is referred to as the section on misery. Misery is a, a word comes from an, an older Middle Germanic word that refers to misery not in merely in terms of experiential affliction, the feelings of, of sorrow, but of alienation. Um, and principally, it has in mind alienation from God. Uh, so Lord's Day 2 uh, consists of three questions. So question and answer three, how do you come to know your misery? And the answer is, the law of God tells me. Uh, question four, what does God uh, what does God's law require of us? Answer, Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. And then question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? Answer, no. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. We'll take these a bit piecemeal here. You'll, you'll see the, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism is particularly handy in how it how it handles uh, an exact definition of the law. Because here in, uh, here in question answer three, you kind of have to make the inference. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. One thing to note on this, to just to begin, is that, uh, again, the Heidelberg Catechism is asking in a manner that doesn't ask you whether or not you are miserable or whether or not there is uh, misery or alienation in uh, a person's life. It is already presuming that you have misery, and now it's asking, well, how do you come to the knowledge uh, of uh, that you are miserable? And so therein is the, uh, the point here of, of the law that it is speaking of. It's not a head knowledge of the law. It's not an abstract theoretical knowledge. In other words, it's pointing you to a personal knowledge that this is your misery. It is your own misery. And it is the real, true law of God that reveals that misery. I'll, I'll just state one brief aspect of, of, of how we understand this in terms of the law. And then, uh, Andrew will take over for a moment there with, uh, with the Westminster Shorter, uh, with an actual precise definition from it. Uh, so here, the law is, uh, basically it, 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 this is used as a general term to speak of everything that the, that God's commanded, uh, everything which the Lord requires, uh, from his own holy and wise character, what he deems to be good and pleasing and right in his eyes, uh, revealed to man. And, uh, this Lord's Day doesn't specify how exactly the law tells you or where that law uh, the knowledge of that law first originates, but it is getting at the moral law. And here, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, adds ex uh, further light. Yeah, I think another thing, too, uh, just some important distinctions to make here at the outset looking at this subject. We're not going to really see so much the Westminster talk about misery here. It does talk about misery, but it talks about it more under issues of the fall and the state into which the fall brought mankind. Because remember what we talked about before, the Heidelberg talks about things more 
Uh, subjectively, more experientially, essentially, what is misery like for us? How do we know it? As the question itself presents it. Uh, whereas the Westminster is more concerned with objective things like, well, uh, what is this misery and how does man generally come into it? Um, but with that in mind, so uh, what we do have are some questions from the shorter catechism uh, concerning law that say similar, but also flesh out in more detail some of the things that Caleb read for the Heidelberg, and we see that in questions 39 through 42, and then we also jump ahead to question 82, which is also pertinent to this section. So first, uh, question 39, what is the duty which God requireth of man? So again, not so much asking out in terms of misery, but in general, what is the duty God requires? And the answer is, the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. And then question 40, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Answer, the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Now you have to think about this in Westminster terms, because when we talk about this all the time, when we take up other topics, for instance, chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, and that threefold distinction of the law that it makes concerning the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law. And then question 41, wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And then question 42, to further tie together what we've seen with the Heidelberg, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. So again, tying in those two great commandments. Uh, as a further summary of what the Ten Commandments already summarize. And then, uh, question 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. You have here, like I said, more objectively stated than subjectively stated, this idea of uh, God's moral law, what it is. It is God's will for us, uh, but also our inability to keep it uh, post-fall. Now, it is notable that in the Westminster Catechism, whereas the Heidelberg goes straight here on Lord's Day 2, right after the introductory material, there's quite a, quite a bit that comes uh, in between in the Westminster from where we were last time to now. And all the questions essentially, I believe it'd be 4 through 38, are where you deal with issues of uh doctrine of god creation fall and then christology and redemption so you get into uh the incarnation you get into all the benefits of redemption effectual calling justification adoption sanctification uh perseverance and glorification really the entire um plan of salvation and then only after that all then do you come to this teaching concerning the law here you're, i think you'll, you'll also find um uh if you were looking at these uh catechisms there are different proof texts too that you'll see in these um and those uh used for 
their respective questions, which uh, are always worth an uh, additional look. That's one thing with, say, in question answer three of the Heidelberg Catechism, when, when it says that the law of God tells me, text that's referred to is from uh, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. There Paul says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if you were to look at the second uh, proof text there, uh, you would find the section on Romans 7, particularly Romans 7 to 25, uh, verses 7 to 25. We won't read that, uh, the entirety of that, but I, I do note right after uh, that section that's quoted, uh, that's referred to, uh, in Romans seven twenty seven, Paul speaks of uh, how the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Um, and so you're, you're getting this, this then that, that, that background of, of the same thing of what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, uh, is, is speaking of in terms of, uh, the moral law in using that phrase, the moral law as the reflection of God's own holiness. The implicit statement in this is that, that we are sinful. Um, that's precisely where question five in the catechism goes in saying that I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And the next, the next Lord's Day, we'll, we'll go on to speak of, uh, well, okay, well, were we created this way? Is this just our total original intent? Um, so that can be explored at another point. But here there's already the presupposition, um, that man is fallen. As we've said in many other episodes in different series, this is the matter that uh, man is unable to do any good whatsoever. We are not holy in our uh, fallen nature. We do not want to keep the law at all. The knowledge of the law being holy uh, itself is what God uses as a means to expose sin and to reveal uh, further that not only do we not want to obey but even if we could, in a sense, we wouldn't want to. So corrupt is our is our nature. Nonetheless, uh, which will be shown again in, in a later Lord's Day, the knowledge of the law is retained in man uh, as an innate thing. Though he suppresses its righteousness and its, its goodness um, and its right use in wickedness. Throughout scripture, the Lord will then go and uh, double down, even triple down on the law and making it known to man, uh, such as in uh, the Decalogue in uh, Exodus 20. There the Lord spells out again what is already written on the heart. And later on, uh, Jesus will also summarize the law with Matthew 22, which we read from question and answer four. Also, as it pertains to the Westminster, if you look at the larger catechism, you actually get, as you typically do with the larger catechism it essentially follows the same order but treats these topics in more detail and the larger catechism has a much more detailed treatment of this issue of the moral law where it came from what use it is so for instance in question 92 of the larger catechism uh, you find out that the rule of obedience that is the moral law you get some more details about it such as it was the rule of obedience revealed to Adam in the estate of innocence and to all mankind in him, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, that in that one command you have 
summarily the entire moral law which adam transgressed by breaking of that command and then on it goes on to talk about in other questions after that uh, dealing with the uses of the moral law to the to the regenerate and unregenerate uh, which the shorter catechism doesn't really get into and really the heidelberg doesn't really get into either Uh, so it's worthwhile for some uh, further expansion on some of these issues. It doesn't get into it, uh, at least not here. I mean, if you break out the Westminster Larger Catechism, I could, you know, uh, we could break out the uh, Canons of Dort on this same topic too, uh, and get further expansive, uh, particularly in the, the heads three and four of Canon three and four, uh, article five. Uh, we won't go into that here. But there's uh so it's it's it, there's kind of an overall comprehension uh, in in being able to uh with, with the three forms of unity and being able to kind of cross reference one another in these kind of things and build larger and larger cases for these things uh, such as what you find also then in say Westminster shorter larger and then the confession and uh you know Thurio Bone uh, will say that the, the confession the capital C it's 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 the big guns of of doctrine but. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of unspoken things that are already in the, say, in Heidelberg Catechism question answer four, what does the law require of us? The answer is really just the a quotation of scripture itself. And so that, that could be exposited to uh, numerous ends. But again, the scripture references that are quoted are, you know, are interesting in basically noting what Jesus himself is cross-referencing. Uh, for instance, uh, when 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 Christ says, uh, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength," he's quoting uh, or referring to uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, um, particularly in 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 verse five. But this is what follows after uh, what's known as the Shema, which itself is virtually, a, if you will, a confession. A confession or a creedal statement, uh, a declaration of belief. Uh, Christ says, uh, speaks of Deuteronomy 6, 5, which quotes those same words, uh, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then verse 6 in, in Deuteronomy 6 says, uh, these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. The Lord's uh, speaking then of, yes, a requirement of living these things out as part of you, something that is internal to you that, that is followed that is desired uh, to desire to be good and not merely for the sake of just fulfilling the law. But again, what precedes that is love. So the, the law in its essence, if you will, or we could even say obedience in its essence is uh, love. If we want to state that in reverse, uh, love is obedience. Again, not for legalistic sake, but externally love is, desire for God and then love to then do likewise to neighbor in a greater manner than one would serve himself. I suppose also uh, just thinking because this is something we often want to do on this show is look at our theology and issues of our theology and apply it to our present day. Something we should glean from this is that there is no love in sin there is no love that comes in disobedience to God's revealed will in his moral law. I say this because this is something we've come to before. And uh, just to mention again here, we hear a lot in our day about the cultural 
concerns of our day and issues like uh, abortion and LGBT or really just any kind of issue where sin that is popular in the culture comes into the equation and people will start to say things, well, yeah, we know that's wrong, but we just want to be loving and we want to love our neighbor. And so we'll look the other way at this or not make a big deal out of this. And uh, that's not loving. That's hateful. Um, it's hateful to God and it's hateful to people and that it's not calling them to repentance, calling them to turn from their sin and, and find forgiveness of their sin. Yeah. And, you know, in another measure, uh, this can be likewise pointed into the pews at our own hearts where, um, when it comes down to it, uh, it's, it's not just the wicked outside of the church, but wicked within, uh, or what, uh, Belgian confession, uh, article 29 would refer to as, uh, hypocrites, right? Those who are mixed in the covenant community, yet they're, you know, heart does not bear uh, the righteous fruit uh, of those who are in, grafted into Christ properly. You you can be raised in the covenant. You can be raised in the church. You can hear the law, you know, throughout your whole life. You can hear the, the Ten Commandments read each week. You can hear uh, references to it in, in the preaching. And you can hear the gospel, which speaks of the salvation, of how, how, you're, how you're saved from this uh, wickedness of uh, this, this unlove for God and for neighbor, um, this disobedience. Uh, you can go through all the motions in worship service, but still not get what is being asked or what, what rather what is being demanded and required. One of the popular uh, texts that's utilized with Lord's Day uh, 2 is sorry, Matthew chapter 19, verses uh, 16 to 22, for instance, um, on the uh, Jesus's encounter with the uh, rich young ruler, you know, he comes up to Jesus and he uh, he's basically like, "Hey, you know, what can I do to have eternal life?" And that that question's already entirely like missing the point. You know, it, it, he's he's thinking of the whole thing as as a pattern, as just a uh, as just basically another possession for him to acquire. And Jesus's very point. He tells him basically, yeah, we'll keep the commandments. He's like, okay, cool, I have been. And when when uh, he's like, oh, is, is there anything else? And and Jesus responds to him, well, yeah, if you would be perfect, go go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And what what's what really occurs there is the, is, is Jesus is basically telling him, well, get rid of what you love. Uh, that these these worldly things that you're putting your uh, your trust, your value, your your comfort in life, um, get rid of them, give them to your neighbor for their betterment, and then come and love me, follow me, obey me. Uh, and he just he he wouldn't do that, and he walked away without saying anything. You know, and the, the worst part of that whole thing is he's asking, "What do I do for eternal life?" When the the very source and giver of life is standing right in front of him. He's speaking with him. It reflects not only uh, a misplaced action, but, but misplaced devotion, you know, rather than seeking to justify himself, rather than seeking to be righteous by his own actions and his own works, the righteousness of God in the person of Christ was there right before him and he missed it and he walked away. I think this, this sheds a big light casting it in these kind of 
if you will, personal uh, and experiential terms of how, of how we interact or don't interact with the law. I think that helps shed light on on things like in Psalm 119, I think of Psalm 119 verse 165, uh, David says things like abundant peace uh, belongs to those uh, who love your law. Uh, nothing makes them stumble. Or uh, where he also where it says also in uh, in in Psalm one nineteen, uh, your law uh, is my delight. Oftentimes the law gets cast into a terms merely of something that just condemns you, something that that just bashes you over the head. So how is it that that you know it, it's something that only points out your sin and need for a savior? Um, and so there can be something of a tension when 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 there's passages like like that where David speaks of the goodness of God's law or, or what I quoted earlier uh, in, in a manner, what Paul said in Romans seven twenty seven on the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We were to get this whole sense that the law in and of itself is good and simply we are not. The law drives one to love itself and living in love and that is Again, we remember God is love. Uh, this is revealed through Jesus Christ, but we will not love. We're going to make any excuse to find our own road to heaven or our own road to, to being our own saviors. And that's where the various uh, errors come in. You know, I don't know if, if we would go into it here, uh, we've gone into to them over them in other places, I think, but um. Uh, you know, this is where you get errors like antinomianism, like being so against the law that you want nothing to do with it. And on the other hand, you get uh, uh, neonomianism or or uh, or nomism even, which is legalism, such in the same manner that we see uh, that, that we spoke of in terms of the uh, rich young ruler of Matthew 19. Right. Uh, there, there can be a tendency to. Uh, oversimplify the law, I guess would be one way to put it. You can either uh, start to look at all of Scripture through a radical bifurcation of law and gospel such that the law is perceived as something entirely negative. It's only the letter that kills and only the only the first use in the traditional taxonomy of the uses of the law that convicts of sin. And then any other use of the law that comes in beyond that or after that is is viewed as undesirable, viewed as illegitimate, viewed as, oh, well, that's gospel preaching and you don't want that. And on the flip side, yeah, you have neonomianism or you even have uh, things that we, we would consider beyond the pale of our reform teaching, but like the teaching of of, of Roman Catholicism that... Your salvation in Christ makes you able to do meritorious works, which you must do. Um, you must be on this treadmill of works and of penance and of all the other things that the church requires you to do. And then if at the end of your life you haven't done enough of that, well, don't worry. We'll just give you a few thousand years in purgatory to work off the rest. But, but basically it's on you. Uh, as a, the rich young ruler tried to do to basically earn your own way. In both uh, approaches, in both errors, um, really that the irony is that they reflect one another. Uh, you know, antinomianism um, is really simply lawlessness is basically saying that there is a, a whole nother standard by which it can be judged, by which they can be judged uh, by from the law. 
Uh, they don't want to hold to uh, saying that there are still requirements or rules and regulations uh, that are still upon them, but now uh, walking in the light of Christ. You know, they, they also emphasize uh, grace in and the total covering of sins that, ironically, they end up making uh, sin abound uh, that, that, that because everything is just covered and dealt with. That's true to the to an extent, but Jesus Christ's own meritorious works, Jesus Christ's own righteousness must and will uh, live through us, will show through us. Um, so the, the, the antinomian uh, really uh, has created uh, a whole nother brand of, of, of legalism, you know, in, in creating a, a unattainable standard uh, in casting off any kind of requirement from the law. And, and likewise, the, the legalists end up acting uh, or the, the, the neonomians end up acting as uh, virtually, again, these rich young rulers in, uh, in creating whole new laws by which that they might have their own standard for salvation, ignoring what the, the, the core of, uh, of what God's law actually requires, which is in terms of love in the manner which he has set forth in all of this we, we see and we maintain like yeah it if we are opposed to the law uh, if we are opposed rather we could say to god's standards for righteousness if we're opposed then uh to god who is righteousness then yeah the, the law is going to be a stumbling block to the proud it's going to be a a, a terror to the wicked um because it, it it does serve to be held up as as a mirror to the soul, and in that same measure, it it is meant to point us to Christ alone, who fulfills the law. But to the righteous, as we said earlier, the law is a delight because it is a a desire and love for keeping His commandments, um, which is precisely what what First John five three says. Uh, you know, the love, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome or, or Psalm 19, um, you know, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we see, we see that the, how the law so drastically changes the constitution of man into into revival, uh, into wisdom, into justice and uh, enlightenment, illumination. I think the larger catechism actually gets at this point very well in question 97 when it asks, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? It says, although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ... Be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as a means for man to deliver and save himself, so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, yet besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves hereunto as the rule of their obedience. 
So what you really have coming through there is a, it's a very Heidelbergian point, the law as a rule of gratitude, uh, the law as, uh, yeah, we're not trying to keep the law to save ourselves, nor are we abandoning the law because it no longer or never could save us, uh, but rather because we know what Christ has done for us in fulfilling and keeping this law uh, and in uh, delivering us from our transgressions of that law, it inspires us to thankful obedience and to conformity uh, though imperfectly in this life, uh, conformity to this law as a rule of life. And there's there's something I think interesting with the concept of the law in this manner. Because again, you, you you even use the phrase just now Heidelbergian sense. But even even uh, of course throughout uh, the 17th century in the Westminster Assembly, uh, even even into a more recent period, perhaps in the the even in the the 20th century, there's this massive shift for a I say it's modern. There's a massive shift of a disdain for all authority and for rules. Now, of, of course, this isn't this isn't in a sense really a modern thing. I mean, that, that it goes all the way back to the beginning at the garden. I mean, Adam Adam had a disdain at, at, at the core. As as if we we continue the series, we would speak of next time in Lord's Day uh, three. Adam had a disdain for the terms of the covenant of works, in a sense. He deliberately disobeyed what was clearly laid out in front of him, uh, as you were speaking of the covenant of works earlier on in this episode. But there, there seems to be an increased, through the Enlightenment and modernism, increased uh, desire of, of casting off all sorts of shackles from uh, those who are ab- above us, whom God has appointed as authorities, all the way from the state level down to the, uh, you know, to the local police, uh, to the teachers in the classroom and parents. Man doesn't like authority and rules. I mean, he wants to be able to make the decisions on his own. But all the more so in these days, not only does man hate any kind of authority, man especially hates ultimate moral authority. He hates religious authority. And so this this whole thing just is, you, you use modern uh, modern uh, life as just an example, a clear clear example, even though it's always been around, as how much man hates that God says do this and that God requires something of him. Yeah, I mean, I would say we live in a particularly, it would seem, antinomian age. Now, I'm not saying that legalism and neonomianism and gnomism do not exist. They are clearly out there. I mentioned Roman Catholicism as uh, one such expression of that, though there are many others. But yeah, more than anything, we have this problem of people throwing off authority, of people uh, feeling the need to... Uh, rule themselves and not be ruled by anyone else. We almost sort of see a, a world that is sort of trying to put up the Tower of Babel again and to make man great over and against and essentially to be liberated from God, uh, which is futility because we cannot... We cannot be liberated from God. For one thing, I mean, we are fully dependent on him at all points for our being, uh, for our life, for uh, whatever blessings of this life we have. 
And uh, for another, it's just uh, God is the ruler of all creation. He um, and he has every right to demand of us what is good and what is right in his sight. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, otherwise without. So with, without the knowledge of the law, which again is, is revealed by God, uh, both in nature and in those special uh, revelation as well, in true in, in truly knowing uh, that we stand in the laws under the law's condemnation apart from Christ, man's going to create his own concepts of good. Uh, he's, he's going to create again his his own standards. This isn't just the neonomians I'm speaking of uh, or the nomists, but but every man there's always, they're going to create mm-hmm. their own standards of uh, what it means to be a good person. And I could remember the brief anecdote here, like over a decade ago, um, uh, I remember a coworker of mine, uh, we, we, and we were having a conversation about, about Christianity, you know, and I, I, I said, I was talking about how, you know, well, only good people can get to heaven. Um, that this by, by, you know, me, me, me thinking of me thinking of, uh, you know, those who are, who are Christians and believers uh, at the time I wasn't reformed. Um, she had, she had retorted, well, you know, like, I mean, I, she's like, well, I'm a good person. I, I, you know, I, I go in a, I go in uh, I feed the homeless. I go and do this and that, this, this kind of charitable work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and she was a very pleasant, very sweet person. And, you know, she's like, so, so, you know, how, how can it be that someone, you know, that doesn't believe in Jesus, uh, if, if they're good, you know, that they can be considered, uh, they could be considered a sinner, uh, that they can be considered evil. And at that time, and not understanding the nature of grace uh, or, or the law in this sense, I mean, I, I, I virtually had no answer. You know, I, I, I think I was, I was a budding Christian at that time, if you will, but uh, growing up in a, in a non-reformed tradition with some very different outlooks on these kind of things. But it's a thing that goes to reflect how you know we, we, we can have a kind of general base knowledge of the law, but we need to really truly know what the law means and that comes through in illumination by the spirit i I think sinclair ferguson he put it very well in his book the whole christ which was talking about the marrow controversy a important piece of our reformed history but basically that legalism and and uh antinomianism they're not actually opposite problems they are the same problem and really they both regard the law as too little a legalist would think that the law is too little because they believe that they can keep it. And if you plumb the depths of the law and realize what it actually requires, you realize, oh, there's no way. Uh, the standard is perfection, and we're not even remotely close at any time in our lives. Whereas the antinomian thinks too little of the law because they think that it's not something that is good and not something that is a helpful a rule of life for us and also uh, communicates to us about our God, his holiness and his righteousness. And uh, I think in a situation like Caleb described too, you see that a lot with people in our day that they think too little of the law. You think too little of the law if you think you can keep it or you think you have kept it because, and that's what these questions of the catechism we've looked at are, a point they make very clearly is that, no, actually, we can't. Uh, we never have. Ever since Adam's fall, no one has ever been able to keep this law perfectly with one notable exception, that being Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
Um, but for us, no, we, we have no shot at keeping this law ourselves. And this is why, uh, we need a redeemer, why we need a deliverer, which is where the Heidelberg goes next. Um, it's where the Westminster has already gone by this point in the catechism, but, uh, uh can certainly be called back to mind. Yeah. And uh, where it goes next in, in terms of the next overall section. So there's still Lord's Day, uh, three and four to wrap up the section on misery. And again, here, here now coming to, to the end of, uh, this section of, the, of these teachings on this Lord's Day in, in of the shorter catechism. You know, we recall again what we said at the beginning here of, the nature of misery is alienation from God. And so I hope you see now in this, uh, especially in this context of this law shows how great this chasm is, uh, if you will, uh, between lawless man, uh, between fallen man and God's holiness. So that that's what's exalted, uh, magnified overall here. The Lord's days here are, are uh, here in, in, in the short catechism aren't merely constructed like we said earlier, to beat you over the head, but really to magnify and elevate God's ultimate absolute standard of his own holiness. And then again, like Andrew had just said, foreshadowing to how great and exalted and magnified the grace that's been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Exactly. I think with that, that's probably a good stopping point. Uh, we've spent some time now talking about this topic. And as I said before, this is an occasional series. So whenever we decide to take it up again, we'll move on to Lord's Day 3 and its parallels in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And as we did today, maybe even a little of the larger catechism. But uh, this has been Once for All Delivered. We appreciate you joining us. As always, if you have any questions, any comments, you can reach out to us in the usual ways. You can email us, ofadpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at ofadpodcast. Um, also, you can visit our website. You can consider becoming a paid subscriber. Help us to grow the show. Help us to... Uh, put out more of this sort of content and we appreciate those who do support us and uh caleb any parting words thoughts jokes yeah uh, all all three actually uh you know since uh we're still trying to figure out uh, these these pithy sign-off phrases and uh less this just continues to be a running joke that we just beat even when it's dead uh i'm just gonna start throwing out pithy sign-off phrases until we find something that sticks. So uh, this has been Once for All Delivered, and until next time, toodaloo. Toodaloo? Toodaloo. Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) And cut. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.